Welcome back to Christo.art in part two of this episode on the enigma of Antony Tapius. Do it again. Well, back in part one, I was getting pretty frustrated with my inability to grasp his metaphors. So many have failed before. What makes you think you're different? After all, I find that to be the key to an intuitive appreciation of anyone's art, visual and otherwise. And when I get stuck like that, I don't blame the art. I just know I have to keep going. I'm going to take a little break. Because until I get unstuck and find some real metaphoric truth, the most I can say about the art is just pretty much a bunch of aimless facts and factoids. What are they? Kind of like pickup sticks. Or worse, the most boring card game of all time. 52-card pickup. Please don't do that. So the fuel for getting unstuck is creative enthusiasm. But that day in the gallery, I was burning through my enthusiasm big time. And once that starts running low, well, as I said, I was starting to get depressed. Which really means I was starting to doubt myself. Uh Uh-oh. Fortunately, I really do trust my intuition. But intuition is not something you can rush or force. Connected as it is to creativity and enthusiasm, you might as well call it the muse. Yeah. And as Stephen Pressfield has said, when you're dealing with the muse, you got to hold up your end of the bargain and do the work. Or else. Well, the muse finally hooked me up. Hooray! And gave me an extraordinary explanation for Tapius and his work that not only rings true, but also explains why nobody has been able to give a satisfying account of it before. Really? And well, you might not believe what I'm going to tell you about it, but that's perfectly okay, because I'm never going to tell you what you should think about art. Thinking not your strong point, dear? Sure. The opinions in this podcast are all mine, and I've got plenty of them. Roger that. But they're just examples of how you can think about art not what you should think about it. When it comes to art, your thoughts are just as good as mine. Oh, good. And that's one thing I want to emphasize. What's that? Real art is meant to stimulate independent thought. Otherwise, it's just decoration or something even worse, propaganda. That's bad. And if you remember from my two-part episode of looking at Yan Peiming's portrait of Mao Zedong, The aim of propaganda is to get you and everyone else into thinking the exact same thing about a particular image. That's correct. Okay, like most everyone else, I'm not immune to propaganda. But I get tremendous satisfaction out of thinking my own thoughts and coming to my own conclusions about art and images. I like that! Except that's a skill that isn't really taught outside of art school. What? Learning how to judge and appreciate art for yourself? Well, that takes instruction, time, and effort. No! And contrary to what you might think, it has very little to do with memorizing facts and factoids about art history. What? Oh, sure, a few facts and factoids can help. But in my opinion, the key to a really satisfying experience of art is to recognize and make use of the art superpower you might not know you already have. What's that? Your own intuition. 
See, I know for a fact that looking and thinking about art is the best exercise there is for strengthening that superpower. In fact, you might even call the process CrossFit for your intuition. Whatever. It ain't easy, but it's sure satisfying. And I'm here to make sure that you get that satisfaction. So, you ready for a little high-intensity workout? Yes, sir. Topius provides all the resistance you could possibly ask for. In fact, looking at his images, you might even call him a tough mutter. Oh boy. Oh boy. I mean, he's so tough to figure out that in part one, I was almost ready to give up. Let's see if you can figure this out. No one else has yet. I actually felt like it was going to be impossible for me to fathom what he was getting at. When all of a sudden... These objects and images and, and colors and ways he puts these things together are like a language that is known only to him, or maybe only to him and, say, a twin. This, of course, gives me a, a, a way of thinking about his work because, hmm, because it is a language and because there is this, there's such a thing as twin language where identical twins have communicated with each other before they were able to speak, even prenatally. And this is a very interesting um, way of looking at things and a very interesting subject in and of itself. But it's almost as if he were speaking the way he spoke in the womb to his twin. And I know from my experience as an obstetrician that twin pregnancies often end up where one twin passes long before birth, months, months and months. And so a pregnancy that results in a single baby being born may have actually been a twin pregnancy at some point. This is the only way I can make sense of of this crazy language that he makes. So, once again, it was my intuition that led me to work out for myself that this guy's work is actually a language. And while I could have learned this by reading up on what others had to say about him, that would have been about as satisfying as using some kind of engine to lift weights for me in the gym. Hey, hey, what are you doing? Wrong way. Now, as I look around the internet for what people have had to say about his work, they all seem to use that same word, language. And apparently, over the years, people even asked him what he was trying to say with that language. What the hell is this? Listen to what William Grimes said about Tapius in his New York Times obituary. And I quote, 
His dreamlike symbols, fished from the soup of the unconscious, suggested an ancient language waiting to be deciphered. But Mr. Tapius declined to assist. He refused to explicate the tantalizing scratches, letters, and crosses that seemed to offer the viewer a text. It's all complicated. Well, reading this in the New York Times really made me chuckle, if only at my own stubbornness, but also in amused admiration of my own intuition. Oh, yeah. But that business of never revealing what he was trying to say with this language, that fits, doesn't it? So it doesn't surprise me that nobody has ever figured out what the meaning of that language might truly be. Why? Because it's a strictly intuitive language. And since most everyone tends to misunderstand intuition, they fail to recognize it when it's right in front of them. My own intuition was already telling me that Tapius isn't trying to communicate with us at all. Huh? And that's not just because nobody, including myself, had so far been able to decipher his pictorial language, but my intuition about twin-to-twin communication, well, once it occurred to me, everything about his images started to make sense. But the very idea of a twin language isn't something that most people have reason to ever think about. Roger that. But it is something my sister and brother-in-law know about because my identical twin nephews apparently had a way of talking with each other that they didn't share or use with other family members. Science calls this cryptophagia, and it's apparently a well-known phenomenon among twins. For sure. And whether or not Tapius consciously felt the need to communicate with a long-lost twin, this writing, this speaking of a language through his fingers and feeling his way into sand and dirt and wet cement... Well, that's almost like the ancient Sumerians with their clay tablets. Except it isn't just a matter of communication. What? I would guess, or really intuit, it's more than likely that Tapius himself didn't know what this language meant. Maybe. I think he used it as a kind of antidepressant. Kind of like sucking your thumb as a kid. (laughs) A meditation of texture and touch a method of self-consolation. And that's what I think a majority of his more visually satisfying images were for him. The act of creating each piece became a prolonged and wordless act of self-consolation. And now, his abstractions look so interesting because at their most profound level of meaning, there's a soul-to-soul communication that arises out of a sense of well-being and relationship that we rarely if ever, achieve in our adult lives. This is a privately shared language structure that intuitively created itself, not to connect with you and me, except in the shared universal experience of intimate connection, followed by grief over loss, and finally the longing for solace. What do y'all think? I think Tapius was so prolific because each work was an act that intuitively gave him a ritualized respite from what was likely a profound but unconscious prenatal grief. No way. And while that may sound all too preposterous to so many of you, I remember from my days in obstetrics that the rate of twin pregnancies was something just under 2 per 100 live births. And that rate rose to over 3 per 100 in the ensuing decades, which means, of course, that only around 6 out of 100 people born alive know for sure that they have or had a twin. Yeah, so what? 
But the number of pregnancies that actually begin as twins and then suffer the demise of one twin somewhere along the way, what's known as the vanishing twin syndrome? Ooh la la. Well, before the advent of ultrasound in the 70s and 80s, that seemed to be a fairly rare occurrence. What seems to be the problem? But then a definitive study done in 1992 confirmed the extraordinary and surprising fact that 10 to 15% of singleton births were initially twin gestations, meaning that more than 1 in 10 people walking the earth have actually lost their twin in the womb. Yikes! I promise I'll, I'll leave you some links in the show notes. <laughs> you better run. So this scientific finding, of course, it doesn't prove my theory about Tapius being a survivor of the vanishing twin syndrome. Roger that. But it certainly makes it all the more likely to have been the case. Now, in terms of science, not only is the twin language something of an object of serious research, albeit for reasons that have nothing to do with understanding and aiding the psyche of those involved, Why? The research into twin-to-twin language seems aimed solely at parental fears that their twins may be prone to delayed linguistic development and might therefore lag scholastically behind their singleton cohorts because they're so content to communicate privately with each other. For sure. But there's also significant research to more than suggest the fascinating and rather intuitive concept of prenatal consciousness and psychology. Interesting something that I myself have observed, at least metaphorically, in dreams. For good reason. And so, the straightforward statistics regarding twin pregnancies, combined with a growth in the scientific literature regarding prenatal psychology and consciousness, well, that makes my intuitive surmise about Tapius all the more legitimate. So, I'm looking at a piece now that has like a really thick layer of some kind of sandy substance on a wooden board. And what he's done seemingly is taken his finger and wiped away some of this this goop, this sandy goop that looks a little bit like coffee grounds. And you can see the underlying wood where it's been scraped away. He's made a sort of figure of eight, and then his cross, and then just these two other simple scraping away with the fingers, somewhat ineffectually in a sense. And he's added a little bit of white in a very peculiar manner. I can only call it peculiar because I don't know, I can't even describe it. Could it be that this was almost like what what it would have felt like to be touching the inside of the womb, to be groping for a lost twin? Well, it's certainly possible. It's it's obviously it's a it's a very wild leap I'm making here, which is. N- Obviously not necessarily true at all. However, there's a communication going on. This is a language. It's a very elegant language, even if it's incomprehensible to everyone else, especially me. I like this as a concept. 
But then I'm confronted with his another piece that has a shirt in it. Goodness gracious, what's up with the shirt business? Well, the shirt business, that seems to be one of three big themes in this guy's work. The first, and most aesthetically pleasing of those themes, being what I would understand as the twin language. For sure. Another theme being books. There was a book represented in that black and white image I spoke of in part one. But there are books as the central image in plenty of other pieces. And it turns out that he was born into a family involved in publishing and book selling. So the idea that books must have some metaphoric meaning related to family makes plenty of sense. Oh, yeah. But I would need to look much deeper into those images that feature books in order to decide for myself. And that's just not something I want to spend any time doing. Shh. We're in a library. But the shirts, they seem to have something to do with his history of ill health and tuberculosis in his youth. Chances are modern antibiotics developed after the Second World War held his tuberculosis in check for decades. But his pre-antibiotic experiences as an invalid are very possibly represented by those less-than-aesthetically appealing works involving shirts and underwear. Like the book images, I have even less interest in looking deeper into those clothing images. And while they don't strike me as angry art, I think they deserve special mention as a kind of subset of angry art, meaning those images produced by artists who have suffered some sort of severe illness in life and who continue to lean on that experience as a metaphoric subject in many of their images. This is gonna suck. Well, there's pathos in that, but all too often, not very much poetry. Oh yeah, now we're looking at another one. It's very similar. Sort of coffee ground layers. Looks like it's on, yes, it's on wood. But he's added some sort of cloth to the mixture. Like three separate small pieces of yellowish cloth. So now I'm looking at another piece that, that has more of this sandy substance on it, but this really does look more like the beach. And it would make sense. Why why not? When you're at the beach, to have that same sensation, to be able to go back to it and play with it. Goodness, that makes more sense to me than a whole lot of things. If you've had the sensation before, you keep looking for the sensation in your fingers, in your hands. And then these crosses. It's as if they're the the mark. Well, the mark that would have been left for a, an unborn twin, a very missed twin. I truly think this language that the art world saw in his work is based on the prenatal loss of his twin. Where? 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 As I've said, there's no way to prove that. And even if Tapius were still alive, chances are he would find the idea preposterous himself. Or maybe not. Um, I'm not so sure. But his inscrutable language appeals to so many people, probably 
Because of that shared sense of grief, loss, and longing for solace, we can intuit in some of his more aesthetically pleasing works. In some ways, we're all longing to return to Eden. Would you like to relax? Very often unconsciously. Now relax. No stress. But on a more conscious level, most every one of us is dealing with the loss of someone, something, or some state of deep and genuine joy. Some loss that we can only do so much to properly grieve. And so it remains as a loss we can never quite get over. Hmm. Tapius simultaneously gives us an intuitive reminder of the pain of that grief and loss, along with a gracious and intuitive act of at least temporary solace. While looking and thinking about all this work, I was reminded of another artist who I think is so much better than Tapius at providing that kind of solace we're all looking for. Who's that? His name is Henri Michaud. Back in part one, there was a moment when I said to myself that Tapius's work reminded me of Chinese ideograms. And sometime later, I was reminded of a book I had come across in a completely different context. Henri Michaud's Ideograms in China. Interesting. Michel, who lived from 1899 to 1984, is an artist and poet who's perhaps best known for his experimentation with hallucinogens. What's that you say? But as a poet, I find his work to be deeply satisfying. In this book in particular, well, this book might as well have been an explication of Tapius himself. That is excellent. It's as if Tapius were the Chinese people who developed the ideograms and about whom Michel was speaking. It's an absolute marvel to read. And because of it, I think of Tapius as a calligrapher. I think in some way his work is a continual love letter to his lost twin, and he is an assiduous correspondent. Oh, very nice. He produces out of continuous sadness and longing, out of distance, just like a love letter. I know. But Michel, he seems to produce out of something opposite. His poetry gives me a sense of something mystical. Is this true? There's a passage of pages in which he assembles a moving and eloquent catalog of things that the abstractions of Chinese calligraphy so perfectly observe and share. It's way too lengthy to repeat here. And anyway, to remove it from the context of Michel's poetry would be sacrilege. That's correct. Because it reads as a devotional litany more sacred and moving than any prayerful repetition of medieval Catholic praises to Mary. Don't, don't say that. In reading that, I found myself wondering just what sort of catalog of observation and appreciation for living that Tapius experienced and shared so covertly in his language. I don't, I don't know. And then it came to me in a dream as a muse will often do, but only so long as I've been doing the work. And this is it. If you let yourself, you can feel the Tapius has his heart in his mouth. And the inscrutable mystical paradox is that this is the most perfect expression of both the greatest joy and the deepest grief. As a man, it's so very difficult to allow yourself to go there. How long is this going?
like. But man or woman, you've been there too. You know the feeling. You've had that same heart-in-your-mouth sadness, just as you've had that same heart-in-your-mouth joy. Not only that, but like Tapius, only sometimes do you know perfectly well what caused it. One thing you do know, though, is that our culture frowns upon overt expressions of that very genuine experience, which may just be why we have abstract art, or any genuine art at all. That was a great way to end it. For sure. Well, that's it for now. I've got some episodes coming up that speak to my own art. That is, my own photographic images. Hey, you just knew that was coming, didn't you? Um, I think not. But there's also plenty more museum and gallery visiting to do. So if you dig the show, why not share it? And please do subscribe. Whether that's on the website, Christo.art, K-R-I-S-T-O dot A-R-T, or on whatever podcast app that floats your boat. And if you got any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, shoot me an email. There are links for that all over the website. Alrighty then. Ciao a tutti.